Thanks for listening to the Grace First podcast. If you want to know more about us, head on over to gracefirst.church. Or if you're in the Wichita area, come visit us Sundays at 1015. kitchen that they're a little behind and they asked if I could preach longer. No joke, they actually said it. So we're going to talk about Jesus and the law, but we have to start in Genesis 1 now. So open your Bible to, just kidding. Uh, They did say it, but you know me, they'll be fine. All right, so if you do have your Bible, open them to Matthew 5. We are continuing in our study of the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, It's been great so far. I've really enjoyed just the study of it. There's so much out there on the Sermon on the Mount that you don't even know about or think about or read about just in common context. And so as you dive deeper, it's just been uh, rich and a blessing and just awesome. And then as Jake and I have talked about the different passages and just different things about it that we see and what God is showing us and then what's true about the rest of Scripture because of what we're reading uh, has been amazing. And so we did the Beatitudes uh, split it up into two weeks, uh, and it was a great opportunity to walk through what those, each one of those things mean and how that should shape our lives as believers. And then last week, uh, Jake talking on the salt and light and did a great job of explaining uh, and even giving the visuals that he went as far as ordering salt uh, from there. So it's great that uh, we had the opportunity to hear about salt and light and what it means to be salt and light and what those things are charged for, and it was a great sermon for me to hear last week. I really appreciate my brother in Christ. Um, He's just been an awesome addition uh, to us here. So as we walk through those passages and as we have seen how they've drawn us to this point, now Jesus is going to talk about fulfilling the law, and then as we go on farther into the Sermon on the Mount, he's going to say, not only did I come to fulfill the law, but I'm also going to take the law as you think you know it, and I'm going to drill down on it. On you. And so it's a great opportunity for us to stop and kind of see what it means that Jesus came to fulfill the law before we actually get into the rest of it. I thought about adding, you know, anger and lust and all the rest of it into this part, but I think we'd lose out on the significance of what it means that he came to fulfill the law. So we're going to read the passage. It's short, uh, it'll be on the screen for you. Uh, but we're in uh, Matthew 5, starting in verse 16, actually. I did not have 16 on there for you, uh, but that. So in the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works. All right. So chapter uh, verse 16, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your father who is in heaven. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Let's pray. Lord, we 
thank you for this morning. We thank you for your word. I pray, uh, Spirit, that you would be our teacher this morning. Uh, Lord, uh, let us to lay down the things that we've walked in here with. And, and Lord, I pray that the word would do the work. And I know that you, God, uh, will be glorified uh, through your word. And Lord, we pray these things this morning. Amen. So the very first point is glory of God. There's a reason to go back to verse 16 because I think sometimes, and I don't think Jake did it, but I think sometimes churches uh, leave out these kinds of verses and passages that should not be left out. And I think we kind of read the main thing, which we get the main thing is salt and light, but then we kind of read the last part and we go, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. We miss the fact that all of this is for the glory of God. Like that should be our ultimate thought, our ultimate heartbeat, our ultimate everything in everything that it be for the glory of God. And however, I get a chance to hammer down on this, even though it does get missed often, because I don't think if we get, I don't know if we get any of scripture, if we don't get the glory of God, but we really don't get what's coming all the way through the rest of the Sermon on the Mount and all the way through scripture, if we don't understand that it's about the glory of God. The glory of God is the magnificence, worth, loveliness, and grandeur of his many perfections, which he displays in his creative and redemptive acts in order to make his glory known to those in his presence. That's from C.T. Studd. It is amazing when we look at the glory of God and we get a sense of what the glory of God is. And again, we will never understand it fully. We will never get fully what the glory of God is and how it works and how all these things work out for his glory and for our good But the ultimate purpose is to turn our eyes, affections, and awe back to him. Chris Morgan says it this way, The glory of God is interwoven throughout the biblical story and forms the origin, content, and goal of the entire cosmic narrative. God's glory is the magnificence, worth, loveliness, and grandeur of his many perfections. God communicates his glory through his creation image bearers, providence, and redemptive acts. God's people respond by glorifying him. God receives glory and through uniting his people to Christ, shares his glory with them. And all of this contributes to his glory as God in his manifold perfections is exhibited, known, rejoiced in, and prized. Again, lots of people write things lots better than I could ever say it. But that's what God's glory is. It's wrapped up. There's so many ways that God has shown his glory through creation, through the redemption process, through the prophecies and the fact that all these prophecies were fulfilled. God shows his glory and his majesty and his might. And it should drive us to an absolute awe of him, not go, eh. I mean, I don't know when I was younger, it would have been, somebody could have been, and God is this, and God did this, and God is sovereign, and God is glorified. And you're like, okay. But having lived a little longer now, I can see the glory of God in so many things that I would have never seen it before. Even through tough times and trials, which even probably more so, you see the glory of God in his hand at work in such amazing ways. For he, for his glory, which we'll talk about even in a little bit, and good also sent his son for our salvation. For his glory and our ultimate good. And we must understand God's glory as believers. We must read the word. We must pray. And we must live live with his glory and awe of who God is always. Like, that should be our goal. We shouldn't go to the word and go, all right, accomplish that today. 
I read his word. What does it have to say? God, what are you driving home to me? What do you want to change about me through your word that needs to be changed? What sin is in my life that needs to be rooted out? What rough edges need to be smoothed? God, I want to be in awe of reading your word. And when you start to study the word all the way through, you start to go, well, this right here actually started like in 2000 BC when he said this. And he's exactly right about it. Perfectly right about it. Obviously, we're never going to be perfect in this. When I say always, that's the goal. Perfection is the goal. It's never accomplished, but it should be what drives us. Mediocrity. If you truly love something, if you truly pursue something, if you're truly passionate about something, maybe you have something in your life, maybe you don't, that you are truly passionate about, has mediocrity ever been the pursuit for you? It should never be our pursuit in our love for the Lord, our pursuit of his glory, the way we read his word. I think some people misunderstood a few weeks back when I said, the first thing I don't want to hear when I'm walking through a major trial is, read your Bible more. What that means is, don't just tell me to read my Bible more. Draw me to the Lord. Show me his word. Act these things out. Live in a way in such that you draw me back unto him. And read the word. But if you just flippantly tell someone, you just need to read the word more. I know. (laughs) But when we are in the word and when we are wrestling through these things, read it with passion. Read it with a desire to know him. And as 1 Corinthians 10 31 says, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. That doesn't mean perfection in everything that you do. I think some of us, myself included, that's been part of my anxiety on some things, especially with ministry, especially over like the last year and a half, has been, I didn't do that perfect. Like, I know five people are probably going to come, and I didn't like think of five people. I'm like, but I know there's got to be at least five people who are like, that was not good enough. And so I sit there and stew over that instead of going, you know what? Did I glorify God with my actions? Did I do what he has called me to do? Did I live in such a way that I, I made the Lord bigger than whatever it is that I was walking through, then who cares what five people think because it's about him anyway. Pumpkin Palooza. (laughs) Y'all don't know how many things behind the scenes went wrong with that. Uh, Aaron did because I went in every day and talked to her about it. We had the most people that were never connected to our church ever come to that. So then I get to sit in my car as I'm driving across town to a football game and go, it's not about me. I'm a dummy. Like, I know it's about you, God. And while we didn't see anybody come to Christ through that, we had a chance to connect with people who had no understanding or no connection to our church or no, as far as I know, there's a number of people who have no connection to any church whatsoever. And we had the chance to have a connection with them. We should never approach the Bible with our sinful minds and hearts in a way to usurp the authority and glory of God. We should should always resist the temptation to read into the Bible something that isn't there. We should never come to the Bible and try to reshape it for our purposes. Or as Luther said, it's not, it's not like a clay nose that I can mold and shape and twist and make it look however I want to. But the thing about it is, if you ever see someone mold clay into goofy shapes, you're like, that looks dumb. In the life of a person who takes and molds and shapes the scriptures to look more like what they want it to look like, it looks dumb. So a right view of God and his glory, of course, because they are triune, 
God the Father, God the Son, and the Holy Spirit should give us a right view of Jesus' glory as well. Jesus says he can only do what the Father does in John 5. I and the Father are one. Glory to God is glory to Christ. Glory is also identified with Christ all throughout the New Testament as well. The birth narrative, transfiguration, suffering and crucifixion, resurrection and exaltation, ascension, his reign, and to come, his reign forevermore, victory and judgment. It's all about the glory of the Lord because he is the one who did it. If Chick-fil-A has a higher view of God's glory, his word, and the Sabbath than you do, get your act together. That may strike home a little hard. They give their employees time off. The owners are Christians. They believe in the Sabbath. They believe in the fact that God is to be glorified more than their business. So if Chick-fil-A has a higher view of God's glory, his word, and the Sabbath than you do, you need to stop eating their chicken and start reading your Bible. This right view takes us to the Jesus fulfilling the law. So our point two is Jesus fulfills the law. I didn't plan that intro, but it's happening. So, Jesus fulfills the law. The Sermon on the Mount is an in-depth exposition of the law of God. I, I hope we're not reading the Sermon on the Mount in, in, in compartments. He's preaching this whole thing, and remember, he's preaching it to the disciples. But Jesus is actually giving an in-depth exposition of the law of God throughout the entire thing. And over time, and I'm going to use a word here that I typically don't like to do this, but in time, over time, things like antinomianism, which is basically anti-law, and things like that have actually crept into the church, where there's people who believe that the Old Testament law has nothing to do with this anymore. It can actually be cast out or unhitched or however you want to have that person say it. The law and the Old Testament are left behind for the gospel did away with it, is basically what people have said over the years. And this idea has led to other false teachings and people have thrown off what God said in the Old Testament for a new perverted view of what God actually says now. Like there's two separate things. But remember, God is immutable. God is impassable. God does not change. He won't change over time. And he doesn't change for your whims. And so if God says it, God says it. And this dangerous place is where a lot of churches and people in the world are going and the understanding of God's word is diminishing. And the law's purposes were many. There's lots of reasons why the law was given to the people, but there's two main reasons why the law was given. Number one was to basically point to the fact that you're never going to accomplish it on your own. You can't. You won't have the power to do it. Here's the law. Live up to it. You struck out. Everybody has struck out. So if everybody has struck out and nobody can live up to the law then the law actually was put in place to point you to one greater. That was the whole purpose all along. Also, it's to show us what is pleasing and displeasing to God. If it pleases God or displeases God in the Old Testament, it doesn't change because Christ came and the gospel is for us. The Old Testament is still relevant. The Old Testament is about Christ. It all points to him. It's not like you can detach the two from each other because you are detaching everything about the one who came from the one who is here. And the, even the psalmist said, 
Oh, how I love your law. If we love God, we must love his word. God said, if you love me, obey my commands. And so here in verse 17, he actually uses the words, and yours might be slightly different, but it says, do not think. In the actual language here, most people agree that he is using the most intense form of whatever it is you're trying to get across. He's using it in the most intense form here. Do not think is more like, you better not mess this up. I'm being as clear as I possibly can be. Locate this drive it into your heads. I mean, whatever you want to come to, Jesus, when he says, don't think, is not a little remark here. So it's not, don't think that that's not the case. Never believe this. Don't think I have come to abolish or destroy the law. I've come to fulfill them. And not one jot or tittle will pass away from until it is accomplished. Or yours may have iota or dot. I'm not going to take you through a Hebrew lesson. Uh, that would be boring for you, but that's okay. Jesus didn't fit the narrative. So we have the disciples. Remember, the disciples are around. And then, and then on top of the disciples being there and Jesus teaching the disciples, there's tons of people still watching this. There's lots of people around paying attention to what Jesus is saying. And Jesus doesn't fit the narrative of the Pharisees, the scribes, the teachers, the rabbis, all these people. He doesn't fit their narrative because he's doing things that they're not supposed to do. As Christians, we know Christ is perfectly righteous. We know that. We read the scriptures. If we're a believer, we have experienced that righteousness because that righteousness has been put onto us. We have, we have that righteousness on us. That's why we're saved. Those who are dead in Christ, when they meet the Lord, this side, the other side of eternity, they are going to see, God will see the righteousness blood of Christ on that person and they will be entered into heaven. They will be with the Lord. It is exactly as the Lord has said it. So when we say Christ is perfect in all of his righteousness, he is. But for those people back then, that didn't make any sense whatsoever because they're still under the sacrificial law. Those in his time were actually baffled by him. I mean, we know God's law. These guys would say, we know God's law. And this guy doesn't do God's law. In fact, he does the opposite sometimes. So if he doesn't do what we think he should do, then and we don't really care for this guy. Or maybe he's just not really a good teacher after all. Which is hilarious because the world right now was like, oh, Jesus was a good teacher. Well, he said this. Oh, no, he, he wouldn't have said that. Oh, it, it's, it's literally right, right here. I had someone uh, post recently that too many people worship the Bible and think too highly of it. Jesus wouldn't have said half those things. Uh, I did not remark. I did not post back. I did want to go through the screen, though, but I did not post back. He angered the Jewish leaders because his lifestyle and his words seemed to contradict the traditional Jewish interpretation of the law. I mean, he spent time with women. You're not supposed to spend time with women. That leads to your destruction. He spent time with sinners. <gasps> Thank you, Jesus. He spent time with them. He ate dinner with them. They're the dirtiest, gross people that you're not supposed to be around. How can you call yourself righteous and justified and good if all you're doing is hanging out with these people? I didn't come for the healthy. I came for the sick. He also seemed to take away or change parts of the law. All foods are clean. He healed on the Sabbath. He declared people forgiven without going to the priest in the temple to tell them about it first under his authority. 
he healed them under his authority as God declared people forgiven because of his authority. There's an important thing to understand here, though, as you read this and as they're upset that he's not keeping the law as they see the law, Jesus violated traditional Jewish understanding of the law. He did not violate the law itself. He came to fulfill it. He knew the law perfectly. He wrote it. He knew it perfectly. He obeyed it perfectly. He fulfilled the prophets and the prophecy. Like it says, every jot and tittle. Over 300 prophecies about him have either been fully already fulfilled or will be fulfilled in the end times. Perfectly fulfilled. I mean, if you look at the narrative when we get close to Christmas, there's, there's eight to ten that literally he would have had no control over as a human. Where he was born, he just magically ended up in Bethlehem. Where they moved to in Egypt. I mean, there's so many things. He'd be born to these people. There's so much depth and greatness to the word of God and to who God is. And that every jot and tittle of the Old Testament is coming fulfilled and being fulfilled through Jesus and it's all being done and in his life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension and his return, everything will be perfectly fulfilled. He fulfills it all. And some would say that would make all the Old Testament then obsolete if he fulfilled it. He did it. He accomplished it. It's over. He fulfills it without destroying it. Instead, he lays down the truth even deeper to them in the following verses. The next few weeks, it's going to be heavy as we read this stuff because they ask him, I mean, he's going to ask him, do you keep the little Ten Commandments? Yep. Have you looked at a woman the wrong way before, ever in your life? Well, then you have committed adultery. Jesus is going to take the law and bring it to the heart of God. The heartbeat of what it's supposed to be about. Not a bunch of rules and things that they have conjured up in themselves. I mean, Jewish tradition had taken the law and writings and put their own additions onto it. According to the Pharisees, there are 613 plus laws to follow. And I love it that they had this many written out and laws that you're supposed to follow, knowing that most of the, all the Pharisees at some point probably broke most of these laws on their own. But you, lesser people... They had turned the law into 800 pages with man-made amendments and writers. You know, when they do a bill and the bill comes out, it's like, it's going to be about this. If you pay attention to government at all. If you don't, you don't know. A lot of times you'll see these writer bills that get attached to it that come along with it. It's like the dangly things hanging off the back, but nobody pays attention to those. That's what the Pharisees had done. They had taken the law and said, keep the Sabbath holy. And they're like, so you won't do this, you can't do this, you don't do this, you won't do this. Don't walk this far. If you walk this far, you're in trouble. And Jesus healing on the Sabbath broke all of those things because he was about the heart of God, not about some stupid man-made amendments to the law. They wrote on top of the 800 pages of man-made amendments and writers, they also will write 12 volumes on how to follow those 800 rules. The law had become something it was never meant to be through the foolishness of man. The rules on the Sabbath and talking to or being around certain people was never the heart of God. Jesus didn't follow these rules, and he'll even say, you've heard it said, but I say, because he was after the heart and the glory of God. The law was always meant to be about the heart and glory of God. 
I want you to be obedient because I know it's for your good because ultimately your good will then glorify me. I want you to realize it's about me. And every turn, though, Jesus is challenged by these guys. The rabbis, the teachers, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, they're all challenging Christ on his words and his actions according to the Old Testament. You'll see them come up and say, you can't do that because this. And they'll use some Old Testament writing to try and go against him. Which is hilarious because the Old Testament's about him. Yeah, that part you're talking about, that, that's me. I mean, in the temple, he breaks open. They're like, can you read this passage to us? And of course, they just happen to hand him a passage that he reads that's about him. And he stands up, he reads it, he goes, in your presence today, this has been fulfilled. It's about him. The road to Emmaus. He's walking along. These two guys are walking with them. They're strolling through. I mean, I've had moments where I've like done something or I've been doing something or something was going on. And I'm like, oh my gosh, like I completely missed like this whole block of time. I shouldn't say this out loud, but if you've ever had one of those moments where you're thinking so deeply about something while you're driving and you get like 10 miles down the road, you're like, I don't, I don't remember the last 10 miles. These guys were walking with Jesus on the road to Emmaus. And he said, starting with the Old Testament, starting with the law, starting with the prophets, he works his way all the way through the Old Testament, explaining about how it was supposed to become true that the Messiah would go through these things. And then they get their eyes open as they're sitting at the table eating and he's gone. Jesus preached and taught that the entire word of God was about him. The entire Old Testament, the law, was all about him. Everything that was written, the writings, the prophecies, and the law are all wrapped up together about him. He taught that. If Jesus believes that about the word of God, that should be your heart about the word of God also. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, not one jot or tittle will pass away until all is accomplished. In Christ, there is fulfillment and ultimate beautiful fulfillment when we are in a perfect relationship with Christ and God at the end. The law pointed to a need for someone who could perfectly fulfill all that was required by God for unity with him. Because in its perfectness, if you could live it out perfectly all the way through the law and do no wrong, which isn't possible because we know through Adam we are born into sin, then you could be Righteous before the Lord, but that's not possible. God's full wrath towards sin and his wrathful towards sin. It's not a whoops-a-daisy. Sin is not a whoops-a-daisy. His wrath burns against sin. And while at bay, his full, full total wrath is being held at bay, the law won't keep that because our sin stains us under the law's righteousness. The law could give you righteousness if you could be perfect in the law, but there's only one who is born perfect. I hope that makes sense. It would require someone perfect in every way who had no sin for all those who were guilty under the law. Because if nobody, no human, full human could ever be perfect under the law, it's going to take somebody to be some sort of sacrifice. Or in the Old Testament, it's going to take continual sacrifices over and over again that always pointed to the one. One sin made you guilty under the law and therefore unrighteous before God. In the Old Testament, God established a sacrificial way for people to do these sacrifices, to say that here's our atonement for our sin before you, Lord. But it was never the point of what God wanted. It was always pointing to one greater. 
in Christ, the perfect one, sacrifice will be made. He's the only one who could. God had to send God to pay the price that God required for sinners. That's an amazing thought that he spared. He didn't spare his son to send him to die for us to pay a penalty that we couldn't pay to pay the price that actually will cover us with righteousness. He's the only one because he's the only one who is sinless. You can't take a sinful sacrifice, stick it on a cross and go, that paid for everybody. It has to be sinless. If it's sinless, he, put on, he was on the cross. He took on all the sins of the world for those who would believe in him. Romans 3, I'm going to read a section of Romans 3 here. Romans 3, most of us know Romans 3.23, but we don't really know much of else of Romans 3. But in the light of Jesus being the perfect sacrifice, starting in verse 9 of Romans 3, what shall we conclude then? Do we have any advantage? Not at all, for we have already made the charge that Jew and Gentiles alike are all under the power of sin. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of the vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift and shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways. And the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Then in verse 19, now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. The righteousness given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Jesus Christ. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood, to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. There's a little bit more to Romans 3 than for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The Old Testament remains authoritative in divine testimony and teaching in which some things like sacrifices and ceremonial law pointed to Christ and their ultimate meanings are found in Christ. We get that. We see that. It does not make them insignificant. We see the one through whom it points to. The moral law was not just fulfilled, but it is active and even deeper when we look through the lens of Christ at it. And we'll see that in the weeks to come. And we look forward to the final word on when he returns, when all of this will be fully fulfilled as well. Which brings us to number three. I know you thought we'd never get there. True righteousness versus perceived righteousness. 
The world has a view of righteousness. The world has its own perspective of righteousness. The religious world outside of true Christianity has its view of what righteousness looks like or being good enough to receive a reward, essentially. The world says, if you do these things, you're a good person. I, I've, I really appreciate the funeral on Friday. That preacher preached the word. Nobody left there without hearing the gospel. Nobody. It was deep truth about what it really means to know the Lord. No one could have walked out of there and held on to the fact of, yeah, well, my, my good is good enough. That's what a funeral should be like. That was David's one last opportunity to tell the world about the gospel, which is awesome. And then he's experiencing what we're talking about, which is even better. But God has one truth of righteousness. One. There is no, your path is good for your path. There is no, truth is your truth. It is the truth, and that is all there is, is the truth. The problem is, many have confused where God drew that line in bold. He didn't just draw it. God didn't say, I'd like for y'all to stay somewhere over here. He put it in bold with an exclamation mark. This is my command, not my suggestion. And the world looks at that line and goes, "Eh, I don't really think that that's a good line. And they skew it. And in verses 19 and 20, he turns his attention from telling the disciples about these things. And he turns it, again, still teaching the disciples, but he turns it at the people who he knows are listening as well. They're in the crowd. And he says, therefore, whoever relaxes one of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. The, tri- the scribes and the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, they are the pinnacle. If you're standing there, he's like, your righteousness needs to exceed theirs. I don't know who your guys are, like you like to listen to or whatever, but basically somebody would have to put up like Alistair Begg, R.C. Sproul, John Piper on the stage in front of me and go, your Christianity needs to be better than their Christianity. You've got to be a better Christian than these guys. All right, I'm out. You need to be a better preacher than these guys. I'm really out. This is the standard. So when he says it needs to exceed this, they're looking at these guys going, but they're the best of the best. How could I ever exceed these guys? And he's going to explain to them it's a much deeper thing than that. First, he says, there are no little issues or big issues. The one thing that we grew up with, especially in the churches I grew up in, was, well, that's a, that's a little white lie. That's a little white sin. I don't know where that came from, but that's stupid. Number one, as Jesus teaches here, there's no little sin. A sin separates you from God and puts you under his wrath. A sin. So there's no little ones. But the rabbis and the teachers would teach people that there are light and there are heavy sins. There are light sins that you can do, and that doesn't require much for you. And then there's heavy sins, and you should die for those. All you have to do is take a look at the woman who was caught in adultery. First off, where's the dude? Number one. Number two, caught in adultery, and he's, she's brought before the Lord. 
And as she's sitting there before the Lord, and these guys are like, what are you going to do? And they think they have him trapped. He starts doodling in the dirt. There's lots of things where people think that he's doodling in the dirt. I'd like to think that he's like listing all of their women out in the dirt, or he's listing all of their sins out in the dirt or something. And the thing is, is they're trying to put this woman to death because they have this idea that this is a much worse sin. And Christ, in his understanding of their sins, I'm, I'm, I'm hoping that that's the answer because it's mine. I'm just kidding. But wouldn't it make sense that he's listing their sins out on the dirt going, okay, whoever wants to throw the first stone. And then the oldest to the youngest began to leave. They taught that. They taught it was a worse thing and we're going to do worse things to you. And what Christ is saying is if you teach that, if you lead people in the way that that sin won't condemn you, but this sin will condemn you, and you continue to teach that to people, you will be held accountable for teaching people those wrong things. And the Pharisees and other religious leaders believed themselves to be above those who were not as religious and proper in their worship. I mean, remember, we talked about the guy that said, thanks you, Lord, that I'm not that guy, that dirty sinner over there. Their pride came from an outward example of their life. They created a proper behavior in every minute detail with the law. That's why it's 800 pages. Now, here's the law. Now, here's all the ways you have to act correctly under that law to be righteous. In every minute detail for every foreseeable situation in order to be considered righteous. This is impossible. This is a weight that was crushing. They lived a religious life. Outwardly, they looked like they were the picture example, but inwardly, They had no idea, but inwardly, they were as dead as dead could be. Christ, remember, he's talking to his disciples, so Jesus' disciples could not exceed these guys' religious rulers and these people who played the game of righteousness so well. And Jesus knew that the way in which the Pharisees detailed out right behaviors would only lead to a relationship with the law. He looked at people and said, if you live in these ways as these guys over here do, all you're going to do is have a relationship with the law and it's going to be a disappointing relationship because it's never going to feel right. And Jesus had a greater desire to see people have a relationship with God. While perfectly in the law, establishing the rightness of heart and mind and relationship, Jesus addressed the heart and the mind, the motives, and the obedience, not the list of things to do. And again, if I have truly been saved by Christ and redeemed and changed by him, I will want to live for him, right? I will want to live this way. It's not a list of do's and don'ts. That's not what the Bible is. The Bible is a way for me to learn more about him, to have a deeper relationship with him and grow in my knowledge of him so that when I sin, it's not a oops or a I can't believe I did that or oh my goodness, I need to run away from the Lord. It is, oh my gosh, he has grace and forgiveness for me. So how do we surpass them? By having a heart for God, by having a desire to follow Christ, to do the right things for the right reasons, which is to glorify God. If we love God, we'll keep his commands. It's not good karma or juju or wealth or worldly gain. It's for God's glory. I don't want to sin. I hate my sin. I don't just dislike my sin. God has taught me over the years to hate it. I 
hate it. Even though I do some of the things I still do, I hate it with a passion. And he has taught me to hate it with a passion because he has taught me what it means to live for God's glory. I don't do it perfectly and probably still below passing. I might be like, I don't know, math class, 52 percentish, 40, 30, probably 30. But it's for God's glory. Christ had a view of scripture that was focused on God and his glory. That should be our focus also. If you're a Christian, you should have the same view, like I said, of Scripture as Christ did. And I want to read this from Whitehead. The Bible contains the mind of God, the state of man, the happiness of believers, the way of salvation, and the doom of sinners. Every doctrine in the Bible is holy. Every precept is binding. Every decision is immutable. You must read it to believe it. Believe it to be saved and practice it to be holy. It contains light to direct you, food to support you, and comfort to cheer you. It is the traveler's guide, the pilgrim's staff, the pilot's compass, the soldier's sword, and the Christian's charter. Here, paradise is restored, heaven opened, and the gates of hell disclosed. Christ is its grand subject, our good its design, and the glory of God its end. It should fill the memory, rule the heart, guide the feet, Read it slowly, daily, prayerfully. It is a mine of wealth, a paradise of glory, a river of pleasure. It is given you in life, will be opened at the judgment, and will be remembered forever. It involves the highest responsibility, will reward the greatest labor, and condemn all who trifle with its contents. The last parts of Jesus' words shouldn't be missed here. You will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Consequences are eternal. The consequences of sin and the consequences of not putting our faith and trust in Jesus Christ is eternal. Unless you realize that God, in his love for us, sent his son to die on a cross for us to bear the price that we could never pay, unless he actively changes your heart towards one of the righteous, towards the one who is righteous, through the work of his son and the power of the spirit within you, you will not see heaven. All the things of the law were wrapped up into Christ. All the burdensome of the law was wrapped up in Christ. All the hopelessness of the fact that you will never accomplish this was wrapped up in Christ, put on a cross, nailed, and his blood is our salvation. Because we could never fulfill it, and he did it, we can be saved. You may have all the answers. You may have gone to church your entire life. You may be able to spew off all kinds of scripture back to us, but have you ever really been saved? Or have you lived a life that is good by the law? It's a heart issue. It's an inward issue. It's an obedience issue. It's a desire for the glory of God issue. And it ultimately comes down to do you believe that Christ is who he says he is? And have you put your faith in Christ and trust that he will hold you secure? Let's pray. God, we thank you for this morning. I thank you for your word. I thank you that you have put on my heart the things that were said today. But God, there's so much more throughout this week that you have laid on my heart or put through my head. There's so many more things that I want to tell or say. There's so many more things that this passage Reveals. I pray, Lord, that you would work on the hearts of those in this room. It wouldn't be a 
well, we heard the guy up there talking, so we're going to leave it there and move on with our life. I pray, God, that we would take the word and let it overwhelm us. Overwhelm us, Lord. Pray that for this church. I pray that for everyone in this room or those who can't be here, those who are watching on, t- on the YouTube. I pray, God, that you would overwhelm us with a sense of what your word says and what it means and what it means to be in awe of you and what it means to really rest in the fact that it's about your glory. And God, we thank you for salvation through Christ. And if anyone today does not know you, I pray that they don't walk out of this room without coming to a saving faith in Jesus. It's about that alone. God, we want to glorify you, but how can we glorify you if we don't know you? I pray that you would give us a deeper desire for your word you would break our hearts where we may be hardened, that you may draw us to our knees in prayer where we need to be drawn to our knees in prayer. And overall, God, I just pray that you would speak so heavily where we're at. Change us, make us, mold us into your image, Lord. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.